Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money in Investing show. This week we are looking at the asset allocation matrix. Does it match your risk profile? Is it going to get you where you think it will? Very, very important in today's world because things have changed massively. Get your pad and paper out, take plenty of notes. We'll see you in the show. Hey guys, and welcome to this week's Money in Investing show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurentiel. Pleasure to be here, Mr. Baxter, and I love the fact that we're almost matching chinos here today. Speaking of matching, as my uh, beautiful segues tend to be, we're going to talk about matching up your risk appetite with the asset class that you invest in. It's actually a more philosophical question than what most would suspect, uh, but let's dive into the numbers and also the nature of this as well. Yeah, that's a great segue. And I guess this is the perennial um, challenge, I suppose, within the financial planning space in particular, is when you're working with clients to make sure that the the mix of investments, the flavor, if you will, of the dish that they're eating suits their palate. And it's not as easy as people might think. Uh, you know, typically you might rate yourself as being someone that's, you know, reasonably risk tolerant or aggressive uh, versus someone that's very conservative or somebody that's in the middle. And historically, that would lead you down you know, a particular mix, if you will, of assets classes, but we aren't in the typical economic cycle. We're most certainly not in the typical market. And as a consequence, I do believe that things have shifted some. And it's important for people to sort of take that digger deep, if you will, as to what their investment outcome that they're seeking actually is. And it doesn't always match your risk appetite, that's for sure. And there are a number of assets today that we're going to explore that maybe a lot of our, say, newer listeners may not have heard of before. Mm. And probably some hard truths, because if you've just got a tip from a mate at the pub to buy some crypto, but you're a relatively conservative person, but you're holding Ethereum, kind of doesn't match up, right? It doesn't. And we're starting to see more and more of that. In fact, you know, you look at the asset allocation within self managed super now towards crypto has increased you know, dramatically. And that may well be in line with what people's investment expectations are. And we'll talk uh, to that point in terms of what benefit, I suppose, that crypto actually brings into an asset allocation mix as we go through. Oh, well, let's start b- broad strokes here, AB. And I think for the benefit of our listeners, can we talk about what a risk appetite is and what that actually means? So in, in the financial planning world, we typically do a questionnaire. Uh, and the idea of that is it gives a, a scale or a rating as to how you see yourself from a risk perspective. You know, how much tolerance do you have to a drawdown or a loss on your account? Over what time frame are you prepared to ride that loss out? Or are you someone that would just on the first sign of trouble cash out, run for the hills uh, and look to retime the market and get back in? So there's a, there's a, a very um, sophisticated process that goes in there. And what we do with ours, for example, involves a bit of split testing. We actually ask the same question two, three times coming from a different angle uh, in order to really get to grips with uh, the specific level of uh, risk tolerance that somebody has. So, you know, if you put it on a scale of, say, one to five, somebody that's uh, got a rating of five is very, very comfortable with risk and they're fairly aggressive in terms of both what they're expecting in terms of return and on the other side of the coin, of course, what they're prepared to uh, wear should the investment not work out in the correct way. At the other end of the scale, obviously, at one is someone that's very conservative and has a, a very, very low attitude towards any kind of uh, perceived risk on their investments. Obviously, there's risk on any investment. And in fact, there are some risks on investments that people don't actually realize, <laughs> which I'm sure, again, we'll get into. So you know, someone that's in the middle three. So, you know, you got to work out where you are in there. And that sort of uh, matrix that we use, that questionnaire we use is very good at providing a, a, a rating number. And then that enables the advisor to tailor the kind of products to suit what would be best suited to your answers to that questionnaire. And this is what financial planners will often do as a, as a, as a first meeting type thing before going into a statement of advice or something like that. Yeah. 
Let's now pilot that into the various asset classes, and then I guess we can probably connect the two up, AB. So if we talk about stock, property, bonds, crypto, gold, um, cash at the bank, there's a myriad of them. Um, let's go through them just quickly, rapid fire on each of them, pros okay, and cons. Where would you like to start? Stocks. Okay, let's start with stocks. So direct share ownership. Um, typically, um, you, you'd see that in the middle to higher levels of risk, purely and simply because there's a stock selection component to that. You know, if you've got a choice of buying an Australian bank, for example, is it going to be ANZ, Westpac, Commonwealth or NAB? You may choose to back the wrong one within there. So there's always a stock specific level of risk that is associated with that. The benefits, of course, are significant capital gain potential. Uh, you've also, in the case of the bank, seeing as we're using that as an example, uh, the dividend flow and, and, and in the case of Australia, again, with franking credits, the ability to have a very tax effective income flow out of those assets makes them very, very appealing. So, you know, individual stocks, you then morph that into a portfolio. So you may have a couple of banking shares, some resources, uh, you know, some retail type exposure, uh, you know, a, a biotech perhaps, and uh, some other service companies, infrastructure, and you've got the makings of a, a portfolio. And of course, it's quite easy to add more to your favorite holdings. Uh, dividend reinvestment plans, of course, are very popular, again, from a tax perspective. But you can also really uh, dial in, I suppose, and attack what your view might be in markets that you expect a certain sector to perform well and load your portfolio up towards that. Totally. And and it makes total sense. We can look look at the S&P 500, the US broader market the last year. It's, you know, added on, you know, more than 20% or so over that time. However, we do see drawdowns in the stock market in, you know, 10, 20, 30% in some instances when we saw COVID, for mm. example. So, Having the ability to accept risk, but then have the alpha or the outperformance as well is a, is a careful balance. That's right. You've got to be prepared to accept that there will be drawdowns. Uh, I guess the counter argument to that is, oh, you just become a long-term investor and hold it uh, and wait for it to come back. Uh, they'll probably be putting me in the ground and I'll be kicking the lid off the coffin saying, don't do that, whatever you do, because if an asset's not performing, you've simply got to cut it. That will be sure. my view. But, uh, but yeah, you've got the ability to ride out that volatility, but you have to be expecting um, some level of, uh, of drawdown from time to time in all stocks. The bluest of blue chips can give a little bit back from time to time. Got you. Now, what about property? Uh, we talk of the property market. We've covered this a myriad of times, mm. being quite overheated at the moment, but nonetheless, a lot of people making a lot of money. Mm. Where does that sit on the spectrum? Look, again, I think, you know, a lot of people would view a property and let's categorize property in several different ways. In the first instance, uh, if it's your primary place of residence, you know, you don't necessarily look at that through investment lenses. It's somewhere to live that facilitates either lifestyle or is convenient for schools or whatever it may be at your stage of life. When you start to move uh, into the investment space, obviously, yeah, there's a lot of choices that you can have commercial, retail, industrial, uh, residential. And then once you get into residential, single dwelling, rural, regional, uh, multi-dwelling, high rise, off the plan, uh, uh, new build, uh, house and land. I mean, there are so many different ways of- Tent, tiny house. Uh, tiny house, yeah, an eco tent uh, down in your wigwam. They exist? They do. A uh, bit hard to borrow against, but uh, so, you know, typically investors would look at property as being lower risk than the stock market. And I had a very interesting spa, uh, not spa, but spa, uh, sparring session with our compliance lawyers the other day when we're talking about, you know, the relative risk uh, of a share versus property. And there's well, property is much lower. I said, but from an investment perspective, most people that are in the investment property space put down a 20% deposit and borrow the balance, in which case you're working with five to one leverage. And in, in, in the strict definitions within the laws in Australia around investment performance and talking of risk, something that's a geared product is inherently more risky than a cash covered product. 
And if anyone doesn't understand what we're talking about here, go and watch our How to Use Leverage or When to Use mm. Leverage podcast came out a few weeks back. Yeah, so that'll take you back into there. And, you know, so property is a leveraged instrument potentially and as such comes with a level of risk associated with it that a lot of people do overlook. Uh, I guess more broadly, you've got to get a view on whereabouts in the cycle you actually are to define any level of risk. The same with the stock market. So if you're buying individual shares, uh, and you're in a market that's had a very, very strong run and has started to show what we would deem as being what we call buyer fatigue. Uh, you know, it's been running up a pretty strong, steep hill, uh, but now it's got its sort of hands on its knees and it's catching its breath. Yeah, that's a pretty aggressive play from a share investment. And you can argue exactly the same yeah, with property. People often talk of property, oh, buy and hold for the long term, it doubles every seven years. And that statistic, actually, I've not really seen that validated anywhere. Um, you can be very unfortunate with your market timing. Talk to someone that bought, um, you know, some properties in Port Hedland in the mining boom, for example, and they'd still be down, you know, quite a considerable amount of money. So there is risk associated with that too. I think where it sits more comfortably uh, with a lot of investors is that it's largely passive. You've bought it, uh, hopefully it's leased out. Uh, you're not getting too much hate mail for being an evil landlord that's capitalizing on people that are trying to find somewhere to live. And yeah, it doesn't require that much. It just ticks over the rental income comes in, assuming you have a tenant, of course. And, and over time, it should grind higher. Maybe there are things that you're going to do to enhance the value, renovate, whatever, all those different types of things. So, you know, it's, it's more palatable for a lot of investors because it is largely passive and you don't need to do much. It just sits there and, and that's it. Whereas, yeah, with the stock market, just to compare direct shares every day, you've got an, or every second, literally, you've got a different price for those shares. So you can see the volatility in a much more uh, visible format than you do with property. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's more risky. It's just something that you can observe more closely. And so there's a difference between risk appetite and following the value of your asset day in and day out, minute by minute, uh, that can sometimes give you some feedback. Oh, gee, the market's strong, the market's weak can change, as we know, every tick in the stock market. You don't see that with property. And as such, people often perceive it as less risky because it doesn't seem to be as volatile. Interesting comparison. Mm. And that draws upon your trader psychology too, mm. which we which we talk of. Very much so, yeah. Let's have a look at cash now. And the old adage, if you're conservative or you're indecisive, you're probably holding cash as mm. a safe investment in quotation marks. Not necessarily the case though, right? Well, it's not, and that that in itself uh, brings up an interesting point. I know our creative team were talking about, you know, cash is it a safe investment? And from a traditionalist's perspective, holding cash at the bank is deemed as being the lowest risk form of investment. But in actual fact, that's just simply not true. And there are so many things that are out there that are widely held beliefs, but just because they're beliefs. Um, doesn't doesn't mean it's true. You know, well, here's some numbers for you. Flat Earth Society would be a very good example yeah. of it. Here's some numbers just on on mm. cash. So if we take a look at the average interest rate cash at bank, some, mm. say 1981, 1981 to now, it's about 5% in Australia. The highest in 1989, I think, was 17%. We're in a situation where they're 0.05% on average. Mm -hmm. And with inflation at 3.8% headline CPI, and then assuming, say, a 30% corporate tax rate, you're actually locking in a loss of 4.05% per annum. So as a safe investment, you've locked in a loss. That's right. Uh, and, and you can have this argument until the cows come home with people, I mean, cash is safe. And it, the numbers on a piece of paper or a spreadsheet mean one thing. It's what you're actually getting to have on a real basis, which is very, very important. And when you've got the cost of living moving away from you, uh, i.e. we've got an inflationary period, cost of living is moving up quite strongly. If you've got a property market that's that's moving up very, very strongly, a stock market's been performing strongly, that real value of cash, what it can buy you next year 
is diminishing all the time. And so as an investor that's holding cash, look, you need to have some cash. Everyone does, you know, how many months rent or life expenses or whatever it may be that you want to cover. But if you're holding cash as an asset class, as you say, it could be because you're indecisive and you don't know where to put it, which is valid to an extent. Also, um, it may be that you're relatively lazy uh, and you just oh, I'll get around to it someday, one day, and you're just sitting there accumulating cash. The reality is it isn't a safe investment because you are guaranteed to have less money next year. So you're guaranteed a loss. And as you pointed out, it's around 4%. So if you sat down with somebody and said, look, I'd like to invest and I'd like to sign up for something that gives me absolutely zero upside, but I also want to make sure that I'm guaranteed a loss of 4%, what do I need to invest in? And that would be cash right now. And that's such a far cry from being a safe investment. Now, of course, if you're looking at that on a relative basis, you might go, well, you know, I might lose 4% on my cash, but I could lose much more on the stock market or in property. That is true. But you could also make significantly more too. So it's not just a question of looking at what the downside is. You've got to look at where the upside sits as well. And there is zero upside in cash. It is a guaranteed loss maker for you right now. And that's quite startling for a lot of people. They go, well, this is just absolute bunkum. You two Muppets are sitting there making this up. The reality is your money and what it can buy you next year will be substantially less. And that means on a real basis, you've actually lost money. Plus, you've got to take tax out as well, as you say. It's uh, it's a staggering set of numbers when you really look at mm. them, AB. And to speak it's, of it's which... A, it's, it's a silent assassin. I think, um, imagine sort of, uh, just to give you a sort of analogy, you're in the deli and the, 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 the guy behind the counter has got a big salami and you're asking for... You know, can I have 10 slices of that? You've got people coming over. Okay. And they cuts off the 10 slices. That's your cash. It's every day there's a slice coming off it to take into account inflation. The salami is getting smaller. <laughs> Which no one likes a small salami, right? Size matters. <laughs> no. Park, parking that to the side now. Let's, um, we, we can have a laugh on this podcast. Um, another staggering statistic would be one that we find particularly in managed funds. I think you mentioned that 67% of managed funds actually underperform the market. So where would that sit in terms of a risk spectrum? Look, investors will say having a managed fund um, is probably less risky than owning shares. And to an extent, there's there's a level of validity to that, because if you own four shares, there's a huge amount of concentration risk there for you. If any one or two of those four shares don't perform, you're going to get a big drag on performance. Um, but, you know, the funds management industry can be pious at best. And uh, I think, you know, when you look at things like CanStar and do a survey of the average performance of managed funds in Australia, 67% of them over a five-year view, not just picking a little window of two weeks over a five-year view, 67% of actively managed funds actually underperform the market. And so, yeah, if, if you're in a market that's, that's flat, um, that means effectively you, you're sitting on risk and, and downside there by no virtue upside. of the fact that the, your fund managers underperform. So, yeah, there's a risk that inherently sits in there. And I think that's part of the reason why there's been such a huge groundswell and growth as we've seen in the US. And we're moving, you know, actively into this space as we speak in the ETF space, the exchange traded fund space, which instead of being in a managed fund, you can pick up an index tracker. So you're going to perform exactly in line with the market. You're not running the risk of being, you know, over two thirds of people that underperform it. You're going to perform exactly in line for it. Much better fees. And again, a passive way of getting exposure to the market, assuming, of course, your view is bullish and you expect things to go up over time. Um, you know, buy an ETF that's an index tracker uh, every day of the week as opposed to a, a, an actively managed fund. 
Just a thought, can we start ranking these assets based on intelligence? Is that a podcast that we can do? Oh, I think we could probably try and pull something together. <laughs> whether, whether, whether we're equipped to do that, I don't know. We'll see. How I don't think we are. After the salami comment, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> if we take a look now, AB, um, as we kind of get towards the pointy end of today's broadcast, and that is the the inflation hedge. Inflation's mm. been you know dominating headlines yep. for some time now. We talk of the typical play there being in the gold space and now maybe more towards crypto. Mm. How would we explore each of those assets on a on a risk spectrum? Look, I think when we get into inflation also, probably the, 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 the silent minority of people that have been absolutely hammered by this, of course, would be bondholders, fixed interest investors, which again, um, you typically would associate with people that are more conservative because yeah, with a fixed interest investment, a bond, um, Effectively, it's a capital guarantee. You get your capital back in five or 10 or 20 years time. The challenge, of course, is that in five, 10, 20 years time, that capital is going to be worth far less. You know, if you had a, a, you know, a hundred thousand dollars in bonds that mature in 10 years time, um, what you can buy with that hundred grand in 10 years, particularly at the rate of inflation right now is going to be substantially less. So you get what's called a coupon or a yield or, uh, uh, uh that flows from that. Uh, and bonds in particular tend to do quite poorly, uh, because inflation eats away at them. So again, you're someone that's low risk and you're confining yourself to an asset class, which, um, Yes, it's capital guaranteed, but what that capital is going to be worth in the future is going to be much less than what it is today. So again, even though it's deemed as being a lower risk product, your real return on the back of it is is actually almost certainly going to be negative, uh, just as an aside. So inflation is huge. Gold, yep, the, the, the standard investors, doomsayers, I think uh, we might call them uh, the doomsday preppers, you know, the world's ending, buy some gold. Um, we when, hear this all the time. And, and, and gold this time around, uh, during times of inflation, you normally see gold as, as you rightly say, as an inflation hedge. It goes up in value and, and, and protects you from that inflation. The challenge is that, so again, if you're someone that's a, 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 a lower risk investor and you want to hedge out inflation, I'll buy some gold. It's not worked. And there are a couple of reasons why it hasn't worked this time around. Um, number one is by buying gold effectively, gold is priced in US dollars. And by buying gold, effectively, you're taking a long US dollar view. You're bullish the US dollar. And this is the economy that's printing more money than has ever been seen in history. Um, I think 40% of its money supply uh, in the US was has been printed in the last three years, just to give you an idea. That's crazy. And so by buying gold, you're effectively buying into the story that oh, gold will go up in value. But if it's in US dollars, US dollars will depreciate in value because so many of them are being printed. Uh, so you're actually sort of nullifying any effect that you would have. And I I think that's to an extent why we haven't seen gold perform in this economic cycle as the as the typical inflation hedge. Plus, of course, now it's got competition. You know, if you hold gold, there's no yield, there's no income, there's holding costs, um, and, and and it's hard to leverage into that unless you're using a derivative to do that, which then is, is a different kind of conversation from a risk spectrum perspective. But where's it lost its ground? And I think this is where crypto, uh, and I, I sometimes have to pinch myself that I'm actually saying this. Um, you know, and if you go back through our podcasts over the last couple of years, you know, a couple of years ago, we we're talking, you know, crypto at an arm's length. Oh yeah, that's the punters playing all the rest of it, but it increasingly is cementing itself within the mainstream asset mix. You know, there's more money going into crypto now in self-managed super than has ever gone in uh, at any point in history. Uh, because more and more investors are wanting to gain exposure. But why? Yeah, there's the speculative play uh, that everyone sees. Yeah, you get onto Instagram and Facebook and there's plenty of, of noise being made into that space. 
But crypto is also not correlated to any particular currency. So the issue with gold is that it's held in effectively US dollars, priced in US dollars. Crypto is in any currency. And so what you've actually got is something that's a potential hedge against inflation. It's a finite resource, rather like gold, but you're not tied to any kind of fiat currency. And as such, I think uh, a lot of people have just seen it as a speculative bubble, perhaps myself included up until a while ago. And I'm, I'm in the interest of disclosure, I'm in crypto now and it's, it's been good to me. It's not a mainstay asset for me. I'm still learning more and more about it. But the the case for it, the the tailwind for it, is certainly very robust. And as we continue to move into inflationary and possibly you know hyperinflation environments, um, you know, there's there's very very good potential for crypto to 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 be the new gold. It's a really really interesting comment that you made, and our, I think our podcasts have really reflected the overarching view that society's had our crypto arms length to more popular more popular and now now we're talking about it as a as an asset allocation decision 100 percent totally and and, it, and it's a valid conversation to have now of course you've got to do your homework and you've got to be very careful where you play in that space in terms of the coins that you choose and the exchanges and, uh, and wallets and so on that you operate through um now put that into a risk spectrum which i guess you know two years ago if you're talking about crypto you'd say this is in the highest of high risk it's, it's the dark punter's side. play, it's speculative, it's the dark side. Yet I've already mentioned that it's more and more uh, an asset allocation inclusion uh, within self-managed super. And these aren't air figures. If you look at the, 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 the companies out there that audit self-managed super, they're all reporting much, much, much bigger transactions in that space. But from a risk perspective, from a client risk perspective, to suggest to someone that's not a high-risk investor that crypto is something that they should consider. You, you know, you'd almost certainly be stripped of your credentials and license. Now the argument as an alternate to gold, and if, if you're fairly conservative, you'd have maybe some gold in your account. Now you've got something that's probably a better inflation hedge than gold that you can use. All of a sudden, something like crypto, yes, it is very speculative. I'm not suggesting for a moment that it's not, and it is, hell, it's an incredibly volatile asset to, to consider investing in. But where it sits within the risk appetite has probably shifted. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, and I think it's the main message here is that these asset classes in terms of where they sit can chop and change. And there's no right or wrong. Mm. As we come to the end of the broadcast, I think it's important we note, you know, even for example, your short term indecisive nature means you're holding cash at the bank. That's okay before you then, you know, pile that into whatever you choose. But mm. there are, no, there is no right or wrong answer here, AB. Mm. Are there any final words on, on your part before we cap off today's episode? Look, everybody's different. So let's go for a coffee, for example, which maybe we might do when we're done here. Sure. And, um, and, and, and if you think about it, you know, a coffee is not a coffee anymore. You know, I'll go back in the dark days when I grew up in the UK. Uh, you know, coffee might be instant coffee. You go and get your jar of Nescaf or whatever, Gross. maybe Maxwell House. I don't know if they even exist anymore. They were the two sort of brands that you'd see advertised, and that was coffee. And maybe you might have milk, or maybe you have it black, but that effectively was coffee. Now, you know, you can have everything from a piccolo to a latte to a cappuccino to you know a short black, a long black, a double shot flatty, an almond half strength, cinnamon coffee. vanilla. Yeah, the list goes on. The reality is that the investing landscape has also changed just like coffee. And, and it's now easier than ever to customize the underlying asset that you invest in to match your investment appetite for risk much more closely than probably that which was available 20, 30 years ago. However, 
you've got to know what your taste is, just like coffee. You go, look, that's a great coffee. No, it's not. It's a ristretto. It's far too strong for me. I don't like that. It's the wrong time of day for me to have that. I'd rather have you know, X, Y, or Z. And in just the same way, investing is is exactly that. You have to know. And you know, we started off talking about how a fact find works and discerning what a client's appetite to risk really is, um, and then matching uh, the investment portfolio around that. So you have to know what your taste is in order to choose the right kind of asset. Understand, though, that those assets do change over time. And I guess the key takeaway is the model that you may have used 10, 20, 30 years ago may have been very good to you and think, well, it's worked. Why would I change it? The model was fine then, but the world has shifted enormously. You know, there are asset classes like crypto and ETFs that didn't even exist 20 or 30 years ago, yet have seen explosive growth for a reason, because they meet the needs and the demands of investors who are getting increasingly sophisticated to the point where if we go down the road to our favorite barista and say, can I have a, a cup of instant? He's probably going to walk us off the premises. That's how much taste has changed. Sure. And the investment landscape is just the same. The danger is dragging the baggage of the past to today's decision making. And if you're someone that's maybe, for example, in that transition to retirement, you're looking uh, to, to slow things down, more conservative assets, your typical go-to conservative assets, your bond portfolio, for example, simply won't work in the current environment because it's inflationary. And so you have to adjust the game plan that you're approaching it with. The key thing here, of course, is to be educated and is to get good advice and to actually know in yourself what exactly it is that you want. Because if you don't know what you want, any road will take you there. If you're very precise as to what you're after, some flavor of risk to give you capital growth, a level of asset protection. And heck, we've talked about the stock market and individual shares you know, being perceived at the more risky end because of their very nature. You know, there's a concentration risk. Yet if we overlay options around that, we're able to significantly reduce the level of risk that goes with that. If we talk about ETFs, we could buy an index tracking ETF to give you that overarching market performance. But by laying options around it, which is our expertise, we can help manage the risk by ensuring that position and generating some additional cash flow from it too. So assets have changed. Um, you know, property investing has changed. And you need to make sure that the investment plan that you have is current in today's market rather than clouded by what your beliefs may be as to how they used to work in the past, because the past is there. It's not not available to you now. It's great to be nostalgic and look back on it. But if you're going to make an investment decision today for your future, make sure what you know is current and not clouded by a legacy belief of the world of yesteryear, because yesteryear is gone. Great advice, AB, and I think a uh, an awesome way to finish and looking into the future, that double shot ristretto is staring us both. So thanks very much for your take here. Most appreciated. Absolute pleasure. Anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and share this podcast with your friends and family. We look forward to seeing you next week.